Most of us have heard warnings about online predators and the importance of being cautious when communicating with strangers on the internet. However, when you are in a difficult situation, such as choice, it can be hard to distinguish between those who are genuinely trying to help and those who are preying on your vulnerability. 14-year-old Choi was struggling, and 18-year-old Park appeared to be the answer to her prayers. He was someone that offered her support and comfort during this difficult time in her life. But his true intentions were far from what Choi had initially believed. He preyed on her vulnerability and manipulated her into meeting him in person, where he, along with a group of 11 other boys, sexually assaulted her. As a 14-year-old girl, Choi was at a critical juncture in her life, and she was still in the process of developing a sense of self and a place in the world. Adolescence is a time when young people are particularly vulnerable to the impact of traumatic experiences, and the sexual assault that Choi experienced would have had a devastating effect on her physical and mental well-being. When Choi's aunt received news about her niece's attack, she was furious and immediately contacted the police. In response, Authorities conducted an undercover raid of an internet cafe located in Miryang. This resulted in the arrest of three boys who were believed to be the main suspects in the incident. The investigation then continued, eventually leading to a total of 44 students being arrested for their suspected involvement in the crime. But despite the large number of arrests made, the majority of the boys were never officially charged. You're listening to Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast brought to you by MediaCorp and produced by 1UP Media. This episode contains scenes of graphic imagery and violence. Listener discretion is advised. When someone gets sexually assaulted, Reporting it to the police is often considered the appropriate course of action. But in Korea, some victims have reported being further traumatised by the police and the criminal justice system. A common issue raised is the lack of sensitivity, expertise and resources available when it comes to laws on sexual misconduct. When word of the sexual assault of 14-year-old Choi by the group of high school boys got out, it triggered an intense public outcry. People were outraged that a minor, who was supposed to be protected under the law, had become a victim of such a heinous crime. This was also compounded by the revelation that the police initially failed to support the victims and in fact blamed and traumatised them further with their insensitive remarks and lack of professionalism. While South Korea does have a complicated history when it comes to cases of sexual misconduct, It's important to recognise that the issue is not just about the police or the criminal justice system. Sexual misconduct is a deeply complex and multifaceted issue. But nevertheless, a victim like Choi should have never been blamed. According to our sources, when the victims were brought to the station for questioning, a police official at the Ulsan Nambu police precinct asked them if they did anything to entice the boys before the assault occurred. The police official even berated the victims, accusing them of ruining the reputation of Miryoung. 
Right in front of Choi, he said, The boys who will lead the city have all been arrested. What are you going to do? I'm afraid that my daughter will be like you. At the time, everyone that was involved in the case was a minor. Hence, protecting their identities was absolutely crucial for a case like this. But even this was compromised by the irresponsible actions of a police officer. According to a South Korean news report, the officer who had taken Choi's statement had gone to a karaoke bar one night and became intoxicated. In a drunken state, the officer called the waitress to the room to order more drinks. When the waitress arrived, he took a good look at her and realized that she resembled Choi. He then began to divulge the details of the entire case to the waitress, revealing the identities of both the victims and the perpetrators. In addition to the officer's drunken slip-up, the police also failed to keep the identities of the other victims confidential. They reportedly leaked documents to the media that contained enough information to identify the girls who were sexually assaulted. The mishandling and irresponsibility of the police went beyond just leaking documents to the media and making insensitive comments. For instance, when Choi requested to be questioned by a female officer, her request was ignored, but it remains uncertain whether this was a deliberate act or a result of the limited number of women in the police force. Instead, the victims were brought to a room with the 44 boys arrested in connection with the case. They were told to stand face-to-face with them in the same room and identify their attackers. As Choi stood in the same room with the boys, the police officers proceeded to question each of them about their involvement in the assault. These questions were not only graphic, but also highly inappropriate. In particular, the police asked each boy if they had, quote, put it inside her, in Choi's presence, making her relive the horrific experience all over again, in front of the very people who had caused her so much pain. Choi, do you want to come to my place in Miriam? I promise it'll be fun. Again, it's unclear why the police found it important for Choi to be in the presence of the men who raped her. It's clear that this was highly insensitive and inappropriate, regardless of the reasons the police had in mind. This further fueled the public outrage against the handling of the case by the police and highlighted the urgent need for reform in the justice system. Following the public outcry, the family members of the perpetrators reportedly threatened the victims, warning them to watch out from now on for reporting our sons to the police. In a televised interview, one of the parents of the offenders said, Why should we feel sorry for the victim's family? Why don't you consider our suffering? To make matters worse, the same parent went on to justify the actions of their child, saying, Who can resist temptation when girls are trying to seduce boys? They should have taught their daughters how to behave in order to avoid this kind of accident. The victims and their families also had to deal with repeated visits and verbal attacks from the offender's parents, who were extremely determined to intimidate and silence them. The threats were so severe that one of the girls was reportedly forced to quit school as a result of the constant harassment and fear. The story of Choi is truly heartbreaking. The entire handling of the case was also a complete failure. Not only was she betrayed by her parents, 
but also by the society that should have protected her. The physical and mental trauma inflicted upon her was so severe that she required an extended period of medical treatment. She was mentally unstable and tried to take her own life multiple times, clearly showing the long-lasting emotional damage that was done. The fact that she was only 14 years old makes this story even more tragic. She was just a child who deserved to be protected and cared for, yet she was let down by those who should have had her best interests at heart. After several suicide attempts, Choi was admitted to a closed psychiatric ward for intensive care. Her father, who had failed to protect her from the abuse, continued to display a lack of concern for his daughter's well-being. But he did, however, pay a visit to Choi in the psychiatric ward one day, accompanied by some of the perpetrator's parents. The visit was not a comforting one, as both her father and the perpetrator's parents forced Choi to agree to a settlement offer of 50 million won, which is approximately 38,000 US dollars. In addition, they also pressured her to sign a petition asking for leniency during sentencing. Although it's unclear how Choi was coerced into the situation, it's important to remember that she was only 14 years old at the time and may not have fully understood the implications of her actions. With the petition signed and the settlement money taken, the final blow to Choi's chances of receiving justice and healing was dealt. Her suffering was now compounded by the actions of her own family members. Instead of being able to use the money to cover her medical expenses and begin the process of healing, Choi's father and relatives took the settlement money without her consent or knowledge. They betrayed her and once again left her feeling helpless and alone. After this ordeal, Choi was determined to move forward with her life. She made an effort to resume her studies, but at the time, many schools in South Korea refused to accept a victim of sexual assault as a student. The reasons for this are varied and nuanced. In Korea, academic achievement is viewed as necessary, and some institutions may view sexual abuse victims as a potential liability. Their experience might become a PR fiasco, as hordes of paparazzis could station outside the school. These institutions are also filled with anxious parents who are ready to question the school's every decision. So naturally, they tend to shy away from accepting people like Choi. It's a problem that needs to be fixed beyond just schools, which includes perceptions of students and teachers. The rejections came as another crushing blow to Choi, as she felt that she was being penalized for something she had no control over. Although she eventually got a chance to return to school, her respite was short-lived and she had to leave once again. Parents of the boys began to appear at her school on a daily basis. They were harassing her, persistent and unwavering in their attempts to pressure Choi into signing a petition for parole that would ultimately benefit their sons. It appears that the parents, likely desperate to protect their children, continued to harass Choi until she agreed to let their sons go scot-free. The laws of South Korea state that cases of sexual misconduct can result in a penalty of up to 10 years of imprisonment or a fine of up to 10,000 US dollars. 
However, if the parties involved in the case were minors, the penalty for such an offence is reduced to three years of imprisonment. This applies to all perpetrators of the crime, but of the 44 students implicated in the sexual assault of Choi, only 10 were ever formally accused of the crime. Even then, the prosecution's recommended sentence of two to three years imprisonment with a three-year probation was considered extremely lenient, especially given the severity of the crime committed. Despite this, the judge refused to proceed with formal charges against the accused boys. He cited their young age and the potential negative impact that a criminal conviction could have on their future prospects, especially since some of them had already been admitted to college or were employed. The boys were then redirected to a juvenile court for trial where they would face far less severe consequences for their actions. Adding to the injustice, Choi's father had already taken the settlement money and Choi had already signed petitions for leniency during sentencing. As a result, many of the boys were cleared of the charges against them. Ultimately, only five were ever sent to a juvenile detention centre, but none of them were convicted of any criminal charges. Choi had been through a harrowing ordeal, and the outcome of the trial was yet another disappointment for her. She had hoped that the justice system would take a case seriously and hold the perpetrators accountable for their actions. Instead, the justice system had let her down once again. The aftermath of the case sheds light on the deep-seated issues within South Korea's justice system, particularly in relation to cases of sexual assault. It also highlights the pervasiveness of victim-blaming and rape culture that existed in South Korea during that time. Moreover, the police's treatment of the victims, including harassment, media exposure, and forcing her to face her attackers during the investigation, demonstrates a striking lack of empathy and disregard for the trauma Choi had undergone. This entire ordeal serves as a clear example of the dire need for a systemic change in how cases of sexual assault are handled in South Korea, and indeed in many parts of the world. In recent years, the South Korean government has made significant strides in addressing victim-blaming and rape culture. According to an article published in 2020, the government passed a law that raised the maximum sentence for sexual offences from 10 to 15 years and created a new category of sexual crimes that carries a life sentence. Additionally, the government has also created a specialised police unit to handle sexual assault cases and established a hotline for victims of sexual violence. Although these measures demonstrate a recognition of South Korea's issue with sexual violence, there is still much work to be done. Many people argue that the sentences are still not harsh enough to deter potential offenders, and some critics have pointed out that the law focuses too much on punishment for the perpetrators and not enough on support for victims. It's worth noting that Choi is not the only victim of such a tragic fate. It is highly possible that there are other victims of sexual assault who have suffered a similar fate but have not reported it due to various reasons, such as fear of public backlash or lack of trust in the justice system. If you or someone you know has been a victim of sexual assault, the heinous team understands that speaking up about your experience can be difficult and overwhelming. But it's important to remember that you are not alone and that help is available. Read this episode's description for more information. Seeking help is not a sign of weakness, 
but rather a brief and courageous step towards healing and justice. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast brought to you by MediaCorp and produced by 1UP Media. If you would like to share some feedback or suggest other cases that you would like us to cover, head on down to our website at asiantruecrimepodcast.com. This episode was researched, produced, and written by Yeo Guangjin with audio engineering by Ethan Sam. Special thanks to executive producers Danny Cordy and Barry To from MediaCorp. We hope to see you again soon in the next episode of Heinous.